Book Fifteen, Chapters One through Seven of the City of God. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Darren L. Slider, www.logoslibrary.org. The City of God by Saint Augustine of Hippo, Book Fifteen, Chapter One. Of the bliss of paradise, of paradise itself, and of the life of our first parents there, and of their sin and punishment, many have thought much, spoken much, written much. We ourselves, too, have spoken of these things in the foregoing books, and have written either what we read in the Holy Scriptures, or what we could reasonably deduce from them. And were we to enter into a more detailed investigation of these matters, an endless number of endless questions would arise, which would involve us in a larger work than the present occasion admits. We cannot be expected to find room for replying to every question that may be started by unoccupied and captious men, who are ever more ready to ask questions than capable of understanding the answer. Yet I trust we have already done justice to these great and difficult questions regarding the beginning of the world, or of the soul, or of the human race itself. This race we have distributed into two parts, the one consisting of those who live according to man, the other of those who live according to God. And these we also mystically call the two cities, or the two communities of men, of which the one is predestined to reign eternally with God, and the other to suffer eternal punishment with the devil. This, however, is their end, and of it we are to speak afterwards. At present, as we have said enough about their origin, whether among the angels, whose numbers we know not, or in the two first human beings, it seems suitable to attempt an account of their career, from the time when our two first parents began to propagate the race, until all human generation shall cease. For this whole time, or world age, in which the dying give place, and those who are born succeed, is the career of these two cities concerning which we treat." Of these two first parents of the human race, then, Cain was the first-born, and he belonged to the city of men. After him was born Abel, who belonged to the city of God. For as in the individual the truth of the apostle's statement is discerned, that is not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual, whence it comes to pass that each man, being derived from a condemned stock, is first of all born of Adam, evil and carnal, and becomes good and spiritual only afterwards, when he is grafted into Christ by regeneration, so was it in the human race as a whole. When these two cities began to run their course by a series of deaths and births, the citizen of this world was the first-born, and after him the stranger in this world, the citizen of the city of God, predestinated by grace, elected by grace, by grace a stranger below, and by grace a citizen above. By grace, for so far as regards himself, he is sprung from the same mass, all of which is condemned in its origin. But God, like a potter, for this comparison is introduced by the apostle judiciously, and not without thought, of the same lump made one vessel to honour, another to dishonour. But first the vessel to dishonour was made, and after it another to honour. For in each individual, as I have already said, there is first of all that which is reprobate, that from which we must begin, but in which we need not necessarily remain. Afterwards is that which is well approved, to which we may by advancing attain, and in which, when we have reached it, we may abide. 
not indeed that every wicked man shall be good, but that no one will be good who was not first of all wicked. But the sooner any one becomes a good man, the more speedily does he receive this title, and abolish the old name in the new. Accordingly it is recorded of Cain that he built a city, but Abel, being a sojourner, built none. For the city of the saints is above, although here below it begets citizens, in whom it sojourns till the time of its reign arrives, when it shall gather together all in the day of the resurrection. And then shall the promised kingdom be given to them, in which they shall reign with their prince, the king of the ages, time without end. CHAPTER Two. There was indeed on earth, so long as it was needed, a symbol and foreshadowing image of this city, which served the purpose of reminding men that such a city was to be, rather than of making it present. And this image was itself called the holy city as a symbol of the future city, though not itself the reality. Of this city which served as an image, and of that free city it typified, Paul writes to the Galatians in these terms. Tell me, ye that desire to be under the law, do ye not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondmaid, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh, but he of the free woman was by promise. Which things are an allegory? For these are the two covenants, the one from the Mount Sinai, which gendereth to bondage, which is Agar. For this Agar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and answereth to Jerusalem which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But Jerusalem which is above is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, thou barren that bearest not, break forth and cry, thou that travailest not, for the desolate hath many more children than she which hath an husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. But as then he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what saith the scripture? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. And we, brethren, are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free. This interpretation of the passage, handed down to us with apostolic authority, shows how we ought to understand the scriptures of the two covenants, the old and the new. One portion of the earthly city became an image of the heavenly city, not having a significance of its own, but signifying another city, and therefore serving, or being in bondage. For it was founded not for its own sake, but to prefigure another city. And this shadow of a city was also itself foreshadowed by another preceding figure. For Sarah's handmaid Agar and her son were an image of this image. And as the shadows were to pass away when the full light came, Sarah, the free woman, who prefigured the free city, which again was also prefigured in another way by that shadow of a city Jerusalem, therefore said, Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with my son Isaac, or, as the apostle says, with the son of the free woman. In the earthly city, then, we find two things, its own obvious presence, and its symbolic presentation of the heavenly city. Now citizens are begotten to the earthly city by nature vitiated by sin, but to the heavenly city by grace freeing nature from sin, whence the former are called vessels of wrath, the latter vessels of mercy. And this was typified in the two sons of Abraham, 
Ishmael, the son of Agar the handmaid, being born according to the flesh, while Isaac was born of the free woman Sarah, according to the promise. Both, indeed, were of Abraham's seed, but the one was begotten by natural law, the other was given by gracious promise. In the one birth human action is revealed, in the other a divine kindness comes to light. CHAPTER Three. Sarah, in fact, was barren, and despairing of offspring, and being resolved that she would have at least through her handmaid that blessing she saw she could not in her own person procure, she gave her handmaid to her husband, to whom she herself had been unable to bear children. From him she required this conjugal duty, exercising her own right in another's womb. And thus Ishmael was born according to the common law of human generation, by sexual intercourse. Therefore it is said that he was born according to the flesh, not because such births are not the gifts of God, nor his handiwork, whose creative wisdom reaches, as it is written, from one end to another mightily, and sweetly doth she order all things, but because, in a case in which the gift of God, which was not due to men, and was the gratuitous largesse of grace, was to be conspicuous, it was requisite that a son be given in a way which no effort of nature could compass. Nature denies children to persons of the age which Abraham and Sarah had now reached. Besides that, in Sarah's case, she was barren even in her prime. This nature, so constituted that offspring could not be looked for, symbolized the nature of the human race vitiated by sin, and by just consequence condemned, which deserves no future felicity. Fitly, therefore, does Isaac, the child of promise, typify the children of grace, the citizens of the free city, who dwell together in everlasting peace, in which self-love and self-will have no place, but a ministering love that rejoices in the common joy of all, of many hearts makes one, that is to say, secures a perfect concord. CHAPTER Four. But the earthly city, which shall not be everlasting, for it will no longer be a city when it has been committed to the extreme penalty, has its good in this world, and rejoices in it with such joy as such things can afford. But as this is not a good which can discharge its devotees of all distresses, this city is often divided against itself by litigations, wars, quarrels, and such victories as are either life-destroying or short-lived. For each part of it that arms against another part of it seeks to triumph over the nations, though itself in bondage to vice. If, when it is conquered, it is inflated with pride, its victory is life-destroying. But if it turns its thoughts upon the common casualties of our mortal condition, and is rather anxious concerning the disasters that may befall it, than elated with the successes already achieved, this victory, though of a higher kind, is still only short-lived, for it cannot abidingly rule over those whom it has victoriously subjugated. But the things which this city desires cannot justly be said to be evil, for it is itself, and its own kind, better than all other human good. For it desires earthly peace for the sake of enjoying earthly goods, and it makes war in order to attain to this peace, since, if it has conquered, and there remains no one to resist it, it enjoys a peace which it had not while there were opposing parties who contested for the enjoyment of those things which were too small to satisfy both. This peace is purchased by toilsome wars, it is obtained by what they style a glorious victory. Now when victory remains with the party which had the juster cause, who hesitates to congratulate the victor, and style it a desirable peace? 
These things, then, are good things, and without doubt the gifts of God. But if they neglect the better things of the heavenly city, which are secured by eternal victory and peace never-ending, and so inordinately covet these present good things that they believe them to be the only desirable things, or love them better than those things which are believed to be better, if this be so, then it is necessary that misery follow and ever increase. CHAPTER Five. Thus the founder of the earthly city was a fratricide. Overcome with envy, he slew his own brother, a citizen of the eternal city, and a sojourner on earth. So that we cannot be surprised that this first specimen, or, as the Greeks say, archetype of crime, should long afterwards find a corresponding crime at the foundation of that city which was destined to reign over so many nations, and be the head of this earthly city of which we speak. For of that city also, as one of their poets has mentioned, the first walls were stained with a brother's blood, or, as Roman history records, Remus was slain by his brother Romulus. And thus there is no difference between the foundation of this city and of the earthly city, unless it be that Romulus and Remus were both citizens of the earthly city. Both desired to have the glory of founding the Roman Republic, but both could not have as much glory if one only claimed it, for he who wished to have the glory of ruling would certainly rule less if his power were shared by a living consort. In order, therefore, that the whole glory might be enjoyed by one, his consort was removed, and by this crime the empire was made larger indeed, but inferior, while otherwise it would have been less, but better." Now these brothers, Cain and Abel, were not both animated by the same earthly desires, nor did the murderer envy the other, because he feared that by both ruling his own dominion would be curtailed, for Abel was not solicitous to rule in that city which his brother built. He was moved by that diabolical envious hatred with which the evil regard the good, for no other reason than because they are good while themselves are evil. For the possession of goodness is by no means diminished by being shared with a partner, either permanent or temporarily assumed. On the contrary, the possession of goodness is increased in proportion to the concord and charity of each of those who share it. In short, he who is unwilling to share this possession cannot have it, and he who is most willing to admit others to a share of it will have the greatest abundance to himself." The quarrel, then, between Romulus and Remus shows how the earthly city is divided against itself. That which fell out between Cain and Abel illustrated the hatred that subsists between the two cities, that of God and that of men. The wicked war with the wicked, the good also war with the wicked. But with the good, good men, or at least perfectly good men, cannot war, though, while only going on towards perfection, they war to this extent, that every good man resists others in those points in which he resists himself. And in each individual the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. This spiritual lusting, therefore, can be at war with the carnal lust of another man, or carnal lust may be at war with the spiritual desires of another, in some such way as good and wicked men are at war, or, still more certainly, the carnal lusts of two men, good but not yet perfect, contend together, just as the wicked contend with the wicked, until the health of those who are under the treatment of grace attains final victory. CHAPTER six. 
This sickliness, that is to say, that disobedience of which we spoke in the fourteenth book, is the punishment of the first disobedience. It is therefore not nature, but vice, and therefore it is said to the good who are growing in grace, and living in this pilgrimage by faith, Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. In like manner it is said elsewhere, Warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men. See that none render evil for evil unto any man. And in another place, If a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. And elsewhere, Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. And in the gospel, If thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. So too of sins which may create scandal, the apostle says, Them that sin rebuke before all, that others also may fear. For this purpose, and that we may keep that peace without which no man can see the Lord, many precepts are given which carefully inculcate mutual forgiveness, among which we may number that terrible word in which the servant is ordered to pay his formerly remitted debt of ten thousand talents, because he did not remit to his fellow-servant his debt of two hundred pence. To which parable the Lord Jesus added the words, So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not every one his brother. It is thus the citizens of the city of God are healed, while still they sojourn in this earth, and sigh for the peace of their heavenly country. The Holy Spirit, too, works within, that the medicine externally applied may have some good result. Otherwise, even though God himself make use of the creatures that are subject to him, and in some human form address our human senses, whether we receive those impressions in sleep or in some external appearance, still, if he does not by his own inward grace sway and act upon the mind, no preaching of the truth is of any avail. But this God does, distinguishing between the vessels of wrath and the vessels of mercy, by his own very secret but very just providence. When he himself aids the soul in his own hidden and wonderful ways, and the sin which dwells in our members, and is, as the apostle teaches, rather the punishment of sin, does not reign in our mortal body to obey the lusts of it, and when we no longer yield our members as instruments of unrighteousness, then the soul is converted from its own evil and self desires, and, God possessing it, it possesses itself in peace even in this life, and afterwards, with perfected health, and endowed with immortality, will reign without sin in peace everlasting. CHAPTER Seven. But though God made use of this very mode of address which we have been endeavouring to explain, and spoke to Cain in that form by which he was wont to accommodate himself to our first parents, and converse with them as a companion, what good influence had it on Cain? Did he not fulfil his wicked intention of killing his brother even after he was warned by God's voice? For when God had made a distinction between their sacrifices, neglecting Cain's, regarding Abel's, which was doubtless intimated by some visible sign to that effect, and when God had done so because the works of the one were evil, but those of his brother good, Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. For thus it is written, And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth, and why is thy countenance fallen? If thou offerest rightly, but dost not rightly distinguish, hast thou not sinned? Fret not thyself, for unto thee shall be his turning, and thou shalt rule over him. 
In this admonition administered by God to Cain, that clause indeed, If thou offerest rightly, but dost not rightly distinguish, hast thou not sinned, is obscure, inasmuch as it is not apparent for what reason or purpose it was spoken, and many meanings have been put upon it, as each one who discusses it attempts to interpret it according to the rule of faith. The truth is that a sacrifice is rightly offered when it is offered to the true God, to whom alone we must sacrifice. And it is not rightly distinguished when we do not rightly distinguish the places or seasons or materials of the offering, or the person offering, or the person to whom it is presented, or those to whom it is distributed for food after the oblation. Distinguishing is here used for discriminating whether when an offering is made in a place where it ought not, or of a material which ought to be offered, not there but elsewhere, or when an offering is made at a wrong time, or of a material suitable not then but at some other time, or when that is offered which in no place nor any time ought to be offered, or when a man keeps to himself choicer specimens of the same kind than he offers to God, or when he or any other who may not lawfully partake profanely eats of the oblation. In which of these particulars Cain displeased God it is difficult to determine. But the Apostle John, speaking of these brothers, says, Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother. And wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil, and his brother's righteous. He thus gives us to understand that God did not respect his offering, because it was not rightly distinguished in this, that he gave to God something of his own, but kept himself to himself. For this all do who follow not God's will but their own, who live not with an upright but a crooked heart, and yet offer to God such gifts as they suppose will procure from him, that he aid them not by healing but by gratifying their evil passions. And this is the characteristic of the earthly city, that it worships God or gods who may aid it in reigning victoriously and peacefully on earth, not through love of doing good, but through lust of rule." The good use the world, that they may enjoy God. The wicked, on the contrary, that they may enjoy the world, would fain use God. Those of them, at least, who have attained to the belief that he is, and takes an interest in human affairs. For they who have not yet attained even to this belief are still at a much lower level. Cain, then, when he saw that God had respect to his brother's sacrifice, but not to his own, should have humbly chosen his good brother as his example, and not proudly counted him his rival. But he was wroth, and his countenance fell. This angry regret for another person's goodness, even his brother's, was charged upon him by God as a great sin. And he accused him of it in the interrogation, Why art thou wroth, and why is thy countenance fallen? For God saw that he envied his brother, and of this he accused him. For to men from whom the heart of their fellow is hid, it might be doubtful and quite uncertain whether that sadness bewailed his own wickedness by which, as he had learned, he had displeased God, or his brother's goodness which had pleased God, and won his favorable regard to his sacrifice. But God, in giving the reason why he refused to accept Cain's offering, and why Cain should rather have been displeased at himself than at his brother, shows him that though he was unjust and not rightly distinguishing, that is, not rightly living, and being unworthy to have his offering received, he was more unjust by far in hating his just brother without a cause. Yet he does not dismiss him without counsel, holy, just, and good. Fret not thyself, he says, for unto thee shall be his turning, and thou shalt rule over him. Over his brother does he mean? Most certainly not. 
Over what, then, but sin? For he had said, Thou hast sinned, and then he added, Fret not thyself, for to thee shall be its turning, and thou shalt rule over it. And the turning of sin to the man can be understood of his conviction that the guilt of sin can be laid at no other man's door but his own. For this is the health-giving medicine of penitence, and the fit plea for pardon, so that, when it is said, To thee its turning, we must not supply, shall be, but we must read, To thee let its turning be, understanding it as a command, not as a prediction. For then shall a man rule over his sin, when he does not prefer it to himself, and defend it, but subjects it by repentance. Otherwise he that becomes protector of it shall surely become its prisoner." But if we understand this sin to be that carnal concupiscence of which the apostle says, The flesh lusteth against the spirit, among the fruits of which lust he names envy, by which assuredly Cain was stung and excited to destroy his brother, then we may properly supply the words, Shall be, and read, To thee shall be its turning, and thou shalt rule over it. For when the carnal part which the apostle calls sin, in that place where he says, It is not I who do it, but sin that dwelleth in me, that part which the philosophers also call vicious, and which ought not to lead the mind, but which the mind ought to rule and restrain by reason from illicit motions, when then this part has been moved to perpetrate any wickedness, if it be curbed, and if it obey the word of the apostle, yield not your members instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, it is turned towards the mind and subdued and conquered by it, so that reason rules over it as a subject. It was this which God enjoined on him who was kindled with the fire of envy against his brother, so that he sought to put out of the way him whom he should have set as an example. Fret not thyself, or compose thyself, he says, withhold thy hand from crime, let not sin reign in your mortal body to fulfill it in the lusts thereof, nor yield your members instruments of unrighteousness unto sin. For to thee shall be its turning, so long as you do not encourage it by giving it the rain, but bridle it by quenching its fire. And thou shalt rule over it, for when it is not allowed any external actings, it yields itself to the rule of the governing mind and righteous will, and ceases from even internal motions. There is something similar said in the same divine book of the woman, when God questioned and judged them after their sin, and pronounced sentence on them all, the devil in the form of the serpent, the woman and her husband in their own persons. For when he had said to her, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception, in sorrow shalt thou bring forth children, then he added, And thy turning shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. What is said to Cain about his sin, or about the vicious concupiscence of his flesh, is here said of the woman who had sinned, and we are to understand that the husband is to rule his wife as the soul rules the flesh. And therefore, says the apostle, he that loveth his wife loveth himself, for no man ever yet hated his own flesh. This flesh, then, is to be healed, because it belongs to ourselves, is not to be abandoned to destruction as if it were alien to our nature. But Cain received that counsel of God in the spirit of one who did not wish to amend. In fact, the vice of envy grew stronger in him, and having entrapped his brother, he slew him. Such was the founder of the earthly city. He was also a figure of the Jews who slew Christ the shepherd of the flock of men, prefigured by Abel the shepherd of sheep. But as this is an allegorical and prophetical matter, I forbear to explain it now. Besides, I remember that I have made some remarks upon it in writing against Faustus the Manichaean. 
End of Book 15, Chapters 1 through 7. Recording by Darren L. Slider, Fort Worth, Texas, www.logoslibrary.org.